Welcome once again to Ask, is it okay to hate a person on TV? Interesting question. And more on this episode of Ask. Welcome once again. This is where you ask questions and I try to answer them. Uh, they can be questions about life. They can be questions about scripture, questions about uh, whatever uh, for, from a Christian perspective. So uh, if you have questions uh, and you want to see them on an f- upcoming episode, we definitely are looking for them, need them. Go to cornerstonebv.org. That's our website media page. You just click on it. There's a drop down. You click ask and then you leave your question. Leave your name or don't. It's up to you. Um, so the first uh, question I wanted to deal with that we got through the website is, did Jesus have a last name? Um, and so, uh, great question, and a lot of people think that he did uh, because of how sometimes his name is used, uh, especially sometimes how it's used in, in profane ways, um, but uh, his last name is not Christ. Uh, Christ is a title. It is the Greek word for what you would see the Hebrew Messiah, uh, which just means anointed one of God. And so the Old Testament prophets had prophesied for a long time, a lot of different places, of this coming anointed one, Messiah or Christ, who will come and save them. They didn't understand the implications of that, or the full implications, I should say, of who Jesus would be. Now we do, looking back. But Jesus is not Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the anointed one. Um, uh, people in New Testament in that culture did not have last names like we do. Um, if they had a very common name, which they certainly had their 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 version of that, then usually they would differentiate themselves by son of, um, you know, so Joseph's son of, and so it shows you what family line you're from, and that's how they differentiated common names rather than a last name like we have. Okay, so Jesus did not have a last name in the way we normally like we do in our culture. Second one's kind of a long one, so uh, bear with me because it's it's um, it's a good question. Uh, I recently saw Numbers chapter five, verses eleven to thirty-one. And by the way, if you want to press pause and read that yourself, I am not going to read it. It is a lar- long section. Uh, so again, it's uh, Numbers in your Old Testament, chapter five, verses eleven to thirty-one. Okay, uh, I've seen that verse or that passage used as justification for abortion. Clearly, the argument ignored the sovereignty of God in the process described as well the prerequisite of adultery having occurred. I have to admit, though, that it seems like these verses could be describing abortion on demand in reaction to adultery, which I would find very surprising. I'm not sure, though, given the language used, cursing bowels, swelling womb, thighs falling, etc. So what is going on here? Um, thank you, Jack Wood, by the way, for sending that one in. Um, he warned me before he sent it in, though. And so that passage um, in Numbers, if you, if you read it or do read it, it's one of those types of passages, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the giving of the law. So Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, to a lesser extent, where you get a passage and you're like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? Why is God saying this, right? And so you have to keep a few things in mind whenever reading that. You have to keep in mind culture, okay? So it's very different culture than ours in a lot of ways, a lot of similarities too. They were human, but they also had very different culture norms. They're not American or westernized culture. And and so some things given in response to behaviors of the people are very foreign to us. Um, You also have to keep in mind context. 
So when a lot of the law was given, um, the moral aspects to the law are still for us today. God has not changed in what is right or wrong, but the rules surrounding them sometimes do because you remember that context was a nation of Israel and they were a theocracy at that time. Um, eventually they'd have a king, uh, but still even with a king, they were supposed to be a nation under God, like God is their king. And so he gave them the rule of the land. And, and so they would have lots of details laws or what to do depending on how people uh, kept or broke the law. Um, so that is not the same for us today. The moral aspects are, right? So what this passage was speaking to was a woman uh, who was suspected of adultery, but they weren't sure. There was no physical evidence of it that they could they could tell. Um, and if the husband suspected it and had you know, good reason to suspect it, I don't think it was just a, a crazy jealous husband, but he had some pretty good reason to. This was sort of an acted out prayer where they did some things that seemed strange to us, again, culture and context, keep that in mind, um, that God would then reveal to them whether or not she was an adulterer, adulteress, I should say. Um, so again, keep in mind, we do not follow this because we're not Israel and we are not in that context and that culture as far as this practice to do that. We wouldn't do that today. But in their culture and context, adultery for both the man and the woman was very serious. It could result in the death penalty. That seems crazy to us. And that doesn't mean we should kill people because of adultery today. Again, don't put us in that context. However, you should be looking at the moral aspect of that, of adultery, and how serious it is to God. It was and still is. Why? Ask yourself why. Was God, was God just a harsher God back then? No. Adultery is still incredibly serious today. It's the only thing Jesus ever gives us for a good reason for divorce. It doesn't mean the Bible doesn't lay out a couple more, but Jesus was very specific. Adultery is something that, man, the effects of that are sometimes really hard to come by. It doesn't mean you have to get a divorce. He didn't say that, but he said, man, you can because there is sometimes no going back from the betrayal of trust and how that works. So God knew how much damage that does to marriages, therefore families, kids, communities, uh, right? The, the, for us, churches, adultery. So, so you can take the moral aspect of that and say, man, adultery is so wrong and while I'm not gonna lose my life for, for it, right? That was that culture, that context, um, also should recognize that I should not do it because it causes so much damage. It's not just a personal decision that hurts somebody's feelings. It is really, really uh, powerfully uh, damaging. Um, so back to the question, the language used, if you read it, um, it never really says anything about a child or the woman being pregnant. It does use the word womb and the swollen womb and that kind of thing. Um, it's, we're really, uh, scholars are really uncertain over what exactly this was referring to. It seems to mean that if she's guilty, God punished her by causing barrenness so that she can't get a child um, rather than uh, abortion. And even if it was, uh, you know, resulting in the death of a child, this was not the people deciding out of any kind of convenience to have uh, an abortion. This would have been a judgment of God. Again, I don't think it was the taking the children. I think it was more barrenness, but we don't really know. But it certainly doesn't have any parallel to modern day abortion, uh, where it's killing children out of convenience. 
That, by the way, is very much in the news. Maybe we'll we'll answer it in an up, upcoming episode uh, again, as we've answered abortion uh, or aspects of abortion um, in a lot of a lot of different circumstances. We need to remember that as Christians, we are to be the voice for um, those who can't have a voice for themselves. And this is that one issue. This has been made political. It shouldn't be. This is a moral issue. It has been proven by science. Separate DNA, they feel pain, they're aware, they are a person that happens to be in the womb of a mother and they have rights. We believe that, God designed them. Um, and so therefore, we should be wholesale praying against and doing whatever we can to save those children's lives. I believe that that is the position that is actually pro-women. And when people get confused by that, I tell them how many young women who would have grown into be uh, amazing women in some cases, not so amazing women in other cases, but we never gave them the chance because they were aborted. And so who's protecting the lives of millions of young women in the womb? I think we are and we should be. Um, so I don't know how I got in that rant, but there you go. Last question. I know it's wrong to hate a real person. And I know this is what you've been waiting for. It's what I teased. Um, but what about a character in a TV show? Um, well, <laughs> I, you know, at first I kind of laughed at this question. I said, well, you know, and, and even Steve and I was behind the camera were talking like, uh, I mean, usually in theater or in acting, they, they, they create characters to elicit certain responses. And so they will design a character to be very, very hateful. Uh, man, the A-team, I'm just thinking back as a kid, because it was very flat characters, not a lot of comp complexities to them. Um, and, and and so the bad guys were always just so bad. Like he just, they were just, they would beat up women and children and they were just terrible people taking advantage of grandma because they wanted you to hate them and the A-team comes in and rights the wrong. That was the whole deal of the show and it worked well. I loved it. Um, made me want to smoke cigars. I'm glad I don't, but you know, Hannibal, the whole thing. Um, so I, I, I think ultimately you're designed to have certain emotions towards a character, especially when the show doesn't bring out complexities to the character. Um, sometimes they do, and when they do, you're less likely to hate them. Um, thinking Breaking Bad or something like that, where they're doing bad things, but you also understand the complexities behind it, and so you're like, ooh, that's really bad, but I don't hate you because I understand that certain things have happened to you, and it's a little bit more like real life, that people are far more complex than the pictures that we tend to paint them. Yes, there are truly evil people, but most of us are just very complex, and so you don't like someone because of a lot of complexity to them. So here's what I would say to end it. Um, it's okay to hate someone who doesn't actually exist. Remember, hatred isn't necessarily the sin. Um, it's what we do with that hatred. It's if we hold bitterness, unforgiveness towards someone. If we lash out uh, with our mind, we lash out with how we treat them. You can't do any of that to, an, to a fake person, right? Um, if you chuck a rock at the actor who plays them, now we got a problem. Can't hate the actor, right? He's just, a, he's just an actor, she's just an actress. Um, but, um, it, you know, I could say this, it could be, uh, a way to practice showing empathy for someone you can't stand. Like, so as you're watching the show, and you're like, I can't stand him, right? Maybe think, well, what could be some complexities if that was a real person uh, from their upbringing or things that have happened in their life to give you any opportunity to try to show some empathy? Do I think you need to when it's a TV or movie character? No, um, but you can, you know, you can practice so when you come up against someone in real life you can't stand in a similar way, maybe you're already looking for ways to show some empathy and at least understand their context before just outright hating them and cutting them off from your life. Okay? All right, great questions. Hopefully you give us more, cornerstonebv.org. Hopefully we'll see you this weekend at one of our three gatherings. God bless. Talk soon.